Hello, everybody. This is Salman Askedi. Welcome to Talk Iran, a podcast dedicated to discussing Iran-related issues. Today, I'm speaking with Barbara Slavin. Barbara is the director of the Future of Iran Initiative at the Atlantic Council and a Washington correspondent for Al Monitor. She's also the author of the 2007 book Bitter Friends, Bosom Enemies, Iran, the U.S., and the Twisted Path to Confrontation. She's a regular commentator on U.S. foreign policy and Iran on NPR, PBS, and C-SPAN. A career journalist, Barbara previously served as assistant managing editor for World and National Security of the Washington Times, was a senior diplomatic reporter for USA Today, a Cairo correspondent for The Economist, and an editor at the New York Times Weekend Review. Barbara and I talked about how she became interested in Iran, the Trump administration's approach to Iran and the Mike Pompeo event, the Iran nuclear deal, potential pathways for change in that country, and the prospects of a military dictatorship, as well as other topics. So I recorded this episode a couple of days before Donald Trump made statements about his willingness to meet Hassan Rouhani without any preconditions. Of course, Mike Pompeo came out the same day and listed several preconditions for meeting with Iran's leaders. I bring this up because Barbara and I talk about the conflicting messages that are coming out of this administration, and I thought this was interesting. Anyway, news about Iran is moving very fast these days. There are also protests in Esfahan today. I'll try to do my best to edit and turn the episodes around in a timely manner. I have about three episodes coming out within the next week, so stay tuned and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or the other platforms so you don't miss out. You may also listen on TalkIran.org. All right, back to today's guest. Let's get to it. Here's my conversation with Barbara Slavin. I'm here with Barbara Slavin. Barbara, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Can you start by giving us a brief bio of yourself? Talk about your background and what you do right now as the director of the Future of Iran Initiative at the Atlantic Council. And also tell us what made you interested in Iran in particular. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, I'm a journalist by background, and uh, I ha actually started writing about Iran during the revolution when I was a, a, a writer for the New York Times Week in Review section. We used to do uh, summaries of the week's major events, and for some reason they chose me to write about the revolution uh, and about the hostage crisis. So every week for years... Uh, I was writing about Iran from, from afar. I got to know the names of the various personalities. Um, it was obviously a very dramatic time. Later, I was based in the Middle East in Cairo. Um, and again, I wrote about Iran, but outside Iran. I uh, wrote a lot about the Iran-Iraq war, about also hostages uh, once again in Lebanon. And then finally, I got a chance to go in 1996 for the first time as a reporter for USA Today. And I started going every couple of years, and um, uh, I became quite fascinated with the story. Uh, and uh, also, I was covering U.S. foreign policy at the time. And so I was writing about how the U.S. was approaching Iran and then going to Iran and seeing how it uh, affected Iranians and, and what the response was. And this all grew into a book that I wrote about 10 years ago now, called Bitter Friends, Bosom Enemies, uh, kind of about the, the love-hate relationship between the two countries. And that led to, to think tank work. And so um, it, it's kind of uh, an interest that I've had for a long time, but uh, I w I'm not a scholar of Iran, and I'm not Iranian, so it was a little bit accidental. 
I see. I see. Interesting. Do you still travel to Iran regularly? No, I don't get visas anymore. Unfortunately, it's a little hard these days for Americans. Yeah, I can imagine. So when you used to travel to Iran, did you feel constrained as a journalist in terms of what you could write about the regime? And were you ever concerned that if you said something that might have not gone over well, you might have gotten in trouble or, or anything like that? No, no. I mean, I, I there were obvious constraints in terms of, uh, you know, the fact that the regime was quite aware of who I was speaking to most of the time where I was going. Um, and you need permission if you're going to leave Tehran, if you're going to travel to Isfahan or some other city. Right. Uh, but many of the stories I wrote, I wrote uh, after I left the country, and I was always very... Uh, very uh, free and candid. Um, you know, I, I, I mean, I wrote some very harsh things about Ahmadinejad. I was always surprised that I kept getting visas to go back. But I think he just enjoyed the attention. He didn't care if it was positive or negative. That's fine. Uh, but no, I've never censored myself. Um, and in our work at the Atlantic Council, I focus a lot on Iranian human rights abuses, uh, Iranian military intervention in the region. We try to, to be as objective as possible and uh, criticize Iran where appropriate and criticize the U.S. government where appropriate. Makes sense. As you know, there's a lot going on with Iran these days. Uh, I oh, wanted my to God. Get, <laughs> to say the least. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to get your thoughts on the recent event, uh, Supporting Iranian Voices, where Mike Pompeo addressed a crowd mm -hmm. of Iranian-Americans. As you know, Iranian-Americans are very divided about whether or not it was wise to even attend the event. And even though there, were, there was a dinner afterwards, there's no actual record of what the Iranians said or any conversations involving any Iranians. You wrote about this, actually, in a blog I did, post I in did, the Atlantic yeah. Council. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I spoke to, I've spoken to people who were there and so on. I mean, some people chose to go because they wanted to present their views on, uh, particularly on the travel ban, which, as as you, you know, disproportionately affects Iranians and Iranian-Americans. They also, some of the people who went are supporters of the, the nuclear deal and wanted to express their concern that the administration has walked out of the agreement and is now about to reimpose uh, draconian sanctions on Iran. So, I mean, some groups boycotted, others, you know, uh, took it as an opportunity to speak directly to, to Secretary Pompeo. Um, as for his speech, I mean, <laughs> I've been covering this stuff for so long. You know, I remember George W. Bush, uh, his second inaugural, as you stand for liberty, we stand for you. Words are cheap, you know, right. uh, and especially from an administration that has a very selective approach to human rights that uh, doesn't criticize uh, many countries that have uh, worse records even than Iran when it comes to human rights. I found the whole thing, you know, just part of a big propaganda effort. Um, the administration wants to pressure Iran to change its policies, and, and, and we will see if that's effective or if the result is just to make people miserable. I'm afraid it's going to be the latter. Does the administration even have a cohesive policy on <laughs> Iran? As you know, uh, Donald Trump tweeted yes. a couple hours after the event. It was like 90 minutes after the event. He stepped all over it. I mean, yeah, yeah. Pompeo says we care about Iranian voices, and Trump is threatening to, to destroy the nation of Iran. So yeah. I think it's fair to say there's a little bit of a disconnect there. And uh, no, I don't think there's a unified policy. And uh, I don't think, you know, this whole idea that the Iranians need to hear the Trump administration tell them what's wrong with their own country. Oh, come on now. Right. You know, um, again, I remember the Reagan administration. Some people in, have compared this to our policy toward the old Soviet Union, which I reject because Iran is not the old Soviet Union. Uh, but, you know, this idea that we sort of um, 
would uh, criticize them on human rights while at the same time confronting them, containing them in, in terms of their influence, that this was a model that could work. Well, you know, Reagan actually believed in human rights. Um, mm. Trump doesn't. So you have that problem. Also, uh, we had a very robust engagement with the old Soviet Union. Uh, Russians could come here. Americans could go there. We had something called detente, you may remember. Mm -hmm. Um, And there was was just tremendous engagement uh, between the two countries uh, during that time, starting in the 1970s and going through the 1980s. So that piece is missing now. Mm -hmm. Uh, With Iran, we we, we have no official channels anymore because of leaving the the JCPOA and the travel ban has made it very difficult for Iranians to come here. So this is just rhetoric, you know, uh, angry rhetoric and and very severe economic sanctions. Um, So I I don't see the path out. Now, Trump says he's willing to make a new deal with Iran. I find it hard to believe that there are Iranian officials who are willing to talk to him after uh, the steps that he has taken, particularly in leaving the Iran deal when Iran was complying with it. Right. Uh, so that's I, I find it a very confusing policy and, and one that's just going to cause a lot of pain and, and not produce much result. Is what's happening right now special in any way? I feel like there's always been turmoil in terms of U.S.-Iran relations. Mm-hmm. People have protested in the past. Is there something different this time? Is this an inflection point because of the Trump presidency and the withdrawal from the nuclear deal? Are we going to see some big changes in the very near future? Well, I thought the JCPOA was the inflection point and that it could have led to uh, to a lot of good things, both for Iranians in terms of their economy and society right. uh, and also in terms of U.S.-Iran relations. I really saw that as a as a, a foundation for a better relationship. Unfortunately, the the experiment was cut short because only nine months after it came in, into full implementation, Trump was elected. And that immediately put a chill over over everything. People were waiting to see, would he leave the deal? Would he not? What would he do? And and so, you know, the companies that had started going back into Iran began to kind of, you know, tread water uh, and and postpone. Uh, A lot of things got put on the back burner. And then, of course, finally in May, he pulled out of the deal. Um, So I just see it as as. It's worse than it was during George W. Bush Bush with the axis of evil. I mean, we had something and now that's been thrown away. So what is it going to take just to get back to where we were? Um, It's going to be quite a process. And uh, I'm very worried. I think there's a potential for for military conflict, uh, even though Trump uh, does not, I I think, want to, to have a war with Iran. But there's always a potential. There are a lot of flashpoints in the region where U.S. forces and Iranian back forces are in close proximity. And uh, again, I'm worried about what happens inside Iran to Iranians, that um, the country will be destabilized, it will become more chaotic, that we might even see a military coup, you know, if things get really bad, maybe Qasem Soleimani will take over. And that's certainly not going to be in anybody's benefit. Um, although maybe that's what Trump wants because he likes to deal with strong men, right? He he likes dictators. He's most comfortable with them. Um, but it certainly wouldn't be in the interests of, of the, the Iranian people. And when I read these stories about, you know, young Iranians who've started businesses and now they say they can't manage anymore, you know, there was so much hope after the Iran deal and that's all gone now. 
But some argue that regardless of the nuclear deal, Iran suffers from major cultural and structural challenges. There's cronyism, there's corruption. It's uh... Well, I mean, Iran has always had corruption. It had it under the Shah, and people who were close to the Shah did very well. Right. <laughs> uh, and there were a lot of disparities in income then as well, you know, uh, although I, I, I didn't have an opportunity to, to go to Iran under the Shah, and certainly people were freer to behave the way they wanted in public than uh, than they are now in Iran. Um, I don't know. I mean, I just, I'm a believer in in openness and engagement and interaction. And I thought that the JCPOA would make would make uh, make it easier for Iran to reintegrate reintegrate into the international economy, and that while there would be corruption and some people would certainly benefit more than others, that the society as a whole would also benefit from this. More tourists coming. I mean, you remember how it was after. It's only three years ago when the the JCPOA was was reached, and when you had hordes of European business people and you know coming to to check out the potential things and potential investments in Iran. Um, so, you know, I, I thought there was a possibility for Iran at least to improve, not to become a perfect country. No country is perfect. And and certainly there would be levels of corruption and, and so on that, that would continue. But um, my fear now is that people will actually be forced to rely on the government even more mm. because only the government will have access to hard currency and you know, especially if, if the sanctions really bite, you know, if they have to start rationing goods, for example, people will be totally dependent on the government and private enterprise will will be really uh, crushed. And I just don't see how that's in anybody's interest. I mean, if you if you are looking simply to punish Iran for being Iran, OK. Um, and I think that's really the, the attitude of the Trump administration and that it it's uh, it shares this desire with Israel and Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates uh, and that it has nothing to do with uh, the welfare of, of Iranians or uh, even a strategic vision for the region that goes beyond the kind of pointless conflicts that we're seeing now in, in countries like Yemen, especially, yeah. uh, you know, where the U.S. is siding with with the Saudis and the Emiratis against the Houthis and and who's paying the price. I mean, it's the Yemeni people. So. I thought Obama had a much more balanced view of the region, that he saw possibilities, and that now we've kind of reverted back. Trump is just sort of, you know, he doesn't have, let's face it, the the sophistication to understand the dynamics in the region. And so he's simply being led by the nose. And we have people like John Bolton and, uh, you know, and very close to him now who are known to not just be supporters of regime change in Iran, but to have taken hundreds of thousands of dollars from the Mujahideen Hulk. Mm. I mean, are these the sort of people we want, you know, uh, setting policy on Iran for the United States? Yeah. Uh, so it's it's very, it's worrisome, it's disappointing, it's, you know, anxiety producing. Um, and and I just hope somehow we can all get through the Trump administration uh, and and get back to something that's a little bit more balanced and constructive. So there was criticism of the Obama administration in 2009 that Obama did not really stand up for the Iranian people. Is there any case to be made for external pressure in one way or another uh, mm-hmm. from the U.S. or for, from other groups that are formed outside of Iran that will ultimately work out in the favor of the people inside Iran? Well, yeah, look, I think outsiders can play a role. Um, 
and and can certainly encourage the Iranian government when it does good things and can criticize harshly when it does bad things. Uh, political prisoners, that's a good example. I think, you know, groups like the Center for Human Rights in Iran does a terrific job uh, publicizing the the abuses, the political prisoners, the dual nationals. You know, we should we should definitely um, tell the Iranian government that these kinds of policies are wrong on moral grounds and very harmful to Iran, to to its image in the world, frankly. Um, it was a horrible story, I mean, that they're holding this British woman, uh, Nazanin Radcliffe, holding her essentially hostage until uh, until the Brits pay some sum of money that Iran says they're owed uh, from, from decades ago. So I think there's a role in that sense. Um, hmm. We should always speak truth to power, whether it's here or, or there. But can we tell Iran how to change its government? No. Can we tell Iranian citizens, uh, you know, how to go about uh, changing the system? I don't think so. Uh, you know, there we can we can magnify their voices, give them communications technology, even some sort, sort of training if they need it. But it's ultimately the choice of those who live in Iran, yeah. what kind of society they're going to live under. And as we've seen very often. Uh, U.S. efforts can backfire, and and we can wind up with something worse, uh, and certainly no military intervention. That would be the worst possible thing. Yeah. So uh, this morning, I was actually having a conversation with a friend uh, who lives in Iran, mm-hmm. and uh, he was talking about the situation there and how people are very tired. I think he has a good handle on what's going on in the country. He's a professional. Um, he's probably a little more well-off than, than the average Iranian. But he was saying that Iranians don't care about where the support comes from. We're tired. We're mm-hmm. you know, ready for change. There's a large percentage of people that are supporters of Reza Pahlavi, and he, they want him to do something. Mm-hmm. And we just, we're, we're just tired of this. You know, you guys have a different narrative over there. You're, you're arguing about uh, what should be done, who should do what. But we just want change and we don't yeah, want to wait like, another 10 years 15 years 20 years for reform yeah. so how are we supposed to do that i mean you right. know iran has very powerful military forces right very powerful forces of repression you know yeah i used to hear that too you know i remember when i one trip i took in 2005 people were saying you know bomb us like we had iraq they thought this was great but in the, you know very well that if the u.s actually did intervene militarily People would change their minds very quickly. Also, we would botch it. Look what we did in Iraq, which is right. a much smaller country. You know, the, the, the country descended into chaos. Uh, and, and I think Iranians are very depressed, and they have a right to be, but I don't think they want, they want blood in the streets. I mean, that's, that's been my impression. Now, I haven't been back in a few years, and it may be that people are now so hopeless that, that, that they wouldn't care. But... Um, I, I just think that that I would not put faith, particularly in this administration, right. uh, to to know what to do. Uh, you know, as whether Obama could have done more. I mean, he was advised at the time that if he embraced the green movement, that he would discredit it, and that people would just say, "Oh, it's just an American plot." I don't know how how the government is going to change in Iran. I know it has to change. Uh, I just think we would have had a better shot at supporting Iran if they're without new sanctions. And that the sanctions are just going to make, you know, the government will just blame the sanctions for everything. You know, look at what happened in Iraq. For 13 years, Saddam Hussein was under very stringent sanctions. His government didn't fall. Look at Castro in Cuba. 
All these years, you know what they've done? They blame the sanctions. They blame the United States for, for their problems. So I just, I just don't think that the sanctions is the way to go. I think it's engagement. I think the nuclear deal and then, you know, building on that to, to try to get Iran to change some of its other, other policies like its uh, opposition to Israel, which, which frankly hurts Iran more than it hurts Israel. You know, one of the things that's so frustrating, um, I get a lot of uh, abuse on, on social media, you know, mm -hmm. people uh, saying, who are you and why should you care? And you must be working for the Iranian government or you're working for the CIA or I mean, there's just so much fractiousness. And I, I just don't know that, that there'll be progress as long as people are so busy questioning each other's motives and sticking knives in each other's backs. I completely I mean, agree. It's completely you know, toxic what's going support, on on social media. Support three or four basic principles. Get everybody around those basic principles. And, and you know, that, that Iran is an important country that deserves respect, but it also has to treat its people with respect. That, um, that this Islamic form of government, everybody knows it's completely outdated and it never worked very well to begin with. Respect people's democratic choices. Stop excluding people from the, from the political system. Uh, and, you know, reach out even to Donald Trump, as much as it pains me, you know, you want to talk about these issues, let's talk about these issues, but yeah. don't reimpose the sanctions. Right. Um, you know, Trump just turned on a dime about Europe and tariffs. I don't know, maybe it's possible that if you flatter him in some way, he'll be willing to sit down and talk. If not, I mean, again, it pains me to say it because I think his policies have been very damaging and, and, and destructive. But, uh, you know, have, have a... a a willingness to sit down and talk with the United States, with other countries in the region. Stop chanting death to America. Stop chanting death to Israel. Uh, you know, get real. Maybe everybody could unify around around that. But but you know, it's not for me to say that Reza Pahlavi should come on a white horse back to Tehran. And you know, we can't force the government there to have a referendum on on the Islamic Republic. All we can do is encourage them, you know, to respect the rights of their people, not to uh, make things worse in the region in terms of military intervention, uh, and, and to seek a proper place for Iran that reflects the potential of this country as well as its fantastic uh, and ancient, ancient history. Um, maybe we could just pick two or three things and, and agree on that instead of constantly questioning each other's motives and uh, allowing uh, groups that don't have Iran's best interest at heart to to dominate the debate, as as they so often do in Washington, I'm afraid. You touched on this earlier. You talked about Qasem Soleimani. In the mm. same blog post that we were talking about, you also wrote, U.S. policies are likely to bolster the most repressive elements of the Iranian regime. Are you talking about IRGC and Qasem Soleimani? And what do you yeah. think about his recent speech? Yeah. Well, you know... Uh, Soleimani himself, personally, I don't know what his views are. I'm told that he's not as hardline as some, uh, believe it or not. But no, I mean, the IRGC, the Basij, Ansari, Hezbollah, all the bully boys who, who crack heads when there are demonstrations, the people who are profiting from smuggling, who have access to hard currency, who uh, are training Shia militias all around the region. You know, these are the people who will benefit from, from sanctions. These are the people who always benefit uh, from sanctions. And so that's, that's one of the reasons why, why I oppose them so much. 
Uh, as for Soleimani himself, I, as I say, I don't know what his views are, but uh, but he uh, he's stepping forward in a way that suggests that if the system, the Nizam, thinks that you know Rouhani and company are not up to the job of defending Iran's interests, well, you know, Iran has a history of military dictatorships, after all. Mm. Uh, you know, Reza Pahlavi's grandfather, right? Uh, why not go back to that model? So I always say, watch what you wish for. Um, that, uh, you know, the U.S., if it promotes destabilization of the country, uh, that the, those with guns are the ones who will who will have the most power. And, and you know, I am in favor of regime change. It's just not violent regime right, change right. Hmm. directed from the outside. I'm in favor of internal regime change. Every Iran has changed. I mean, I don't know when you were last there, but you know, over the 20, 20 years that yeah. I've been going, I mean, I remember my first visit where I had to, you know, walk around. What's the expression? Death out for a walk. Uh, you know, all black, right? Death, you know, like like I was in my coffin, you know, 20 years back. And now you go to Iran, you see the way women dress. I mean, it's it's hardly the hijab, right? Um, you know, the society has evolved. People have their 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 sexual mores have changed. There's music, there's films, there's dancing. It's not it's not your grandfather's Islamic Republic. So there already has been regime change. But if you want Iran to become a democracy, okay, you know, form a movement, make it big tent, encourage everyone to join uh, and do it from within. Give give people from the outside something to 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 cheer, uh, as we did when there were, you know, when there were changes in the old Soviet Union, perestroika and so on. But it has to come from within. So. You know, maybe it's a kind of reimagined reform movement. I know the reform movement has been discredited among many, but but something like that that emerges from within, then the outside world can 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 encourage it and 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 can help, as as many people did during the green movement. I mean, you know, we were thrilled and excited by the green movement. Um, it was an amazing period, and and the energy of that time, the ideas of that time, should should not be lost. Um, we don't have to. You don't have to start from scratch. Uh, all you have to do, what, what, you know, get rid of the supreme leader, get rid of the guardian council, have real elections. Mm-hmm. Full stop. Right? Wouldn't that be good? Oh, that would be awesome. That would be awesome. You yeah. know, so so a lot of Iranians would like that, and it's something we can certainly support. But um, but we can't we can't do it for them. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on the White Wednesdays movement and what Hamasi mm. Halinejad is doing? I'm trying to get her on the show. I yeah. know she's spoken out against reform and is sort of more on the regime change side. I don't know the nuances of her argument, so I don't yeah, want to put words yeah. in her she's mouth. She's also very angry at Western women who go to Iran and wear headscarves. <laughs> right. She thinks we shouldn't agree to wear headscarves. Well, then we'd get arrested and we wouldn't be able to do anything. So um, she's okay. Look, you know, the headscarf is certainly an issue, but uh, over the years that I've been talking to Iranian women, they care more about things like child custody and divorce, uh, inheritance, uh, you know, discrimination in the workplace, um, more than they care about whether they have to wear the headscarf or not. Um, but, you know, if women want to take off their scarves, do it. And I think the, the whole notion of enforced hijab is wrong and should, you know, should be changed. Again, if if the government there wants to bring people together, you know, there's some easy steps it can take. Stop punishing women for taking off their headscarves or wearing, quote unquote, bad hijab. I mean, is that really a priority with everything that's going on? 
hmm. with sanctions and threats in tweets from the president of the United States? Does it, do you really care whether a woman is wearing a headscarf or not? So, um, you know, more power to her. I just think there that that again, this effort to divide people. You know, you, you can support what she does and not criticize others who who don't think it's a priority. Um, Mm-hmm. Be a little more tolerant. There's so much intolerance and anger. Mm-hmm. And and again, I understand people have lost their homeland, many of them, uh, particularly people who are, you know, in, in, in the diaspora, who were furious at what's happened to their country over the last 40 years. But but anger isn't going to isn't going to work. It, it's just not going to work. And it alienates people who who would like to be of help. Yeah, um, I completely agree. You know, so so again, it's really hard. This is a time of tremendous political polarization in the United States, tremendous anger at at our government, um, and and you know, uh, people lose their temper a lot, yeah. um, and especially on social media because it's easy, right. and you don't pay a price for it. Um, but I think it, it would it would just be helpful if people would try to be more constructive and uh um you know i every now and then somebody puts something outrageous on twitter and i i react to it and i you know i can't help myself but um <laughs> usually the people i criticize are not iranians they're usually uh non-iranians who who seem to think that they have the answer right. to Iran's problems i won't mention any names um i think you know i don't pretend to and they shouldn't pretend to yeah well this has been very illuminating Thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you for taking the time out of your schedule. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Good luck to you. (laughs) All right. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. Thanks for listening. I hope you found that episode to be productive and interesting. If you did, please share it with your family and friends and review the podcast on iTunes or any of the other platforms. And stay tuned for a lot more great guests coming up. Thanks and take care.